0: All right, well, thank you guys so much for coming. Um, Please open up your Bibles to Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And if you're joining us here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be up on the screen at home. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Praise God, this is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for your presence that is here. You are always in the midst of your church, and we worship you. Lord, you created us to worship you. And I pray that we would worship you not only with song, but now in hearing the word of God. And the way we do that is by simply valuing, prioritizing, receiving, loving what you have to say in your word to us. Not my words, Lord, but your word. So Lord God, open our hearts wide, speak, build faith, and Father God, strengthen the church. I believe that is your desire, is that you want your church to be strong in these dark days. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, we are continuing our study of the seven letters of Jesus in Revelation. And we should all know by now, if you've been coming out, that Jesus was writing these letters because he is always in the midst of his church, and he is always ministering to his church That is everything that is in the vision that John saw in chapter 1. But Jesus is always in the midst of his church. And I was praying with the praise team earlier today, but if we could even just understand that, that Jesus is with us here, that every time we gather as a church, his presence is here. Do you know what would change? Everything. Everything would change. Because the only difference that the Holy Church has amongst all the other organizations in the world is that Jesus is with us. That's really the only difference. That's the greatest difference. I mean, there are a lot of great groups throughout the world. They do a lot of good things, but what makes the church different? We have Jesus in the midst. I mean, we talk a lot about the gospel in our church, the holy gospel. It is an awesome, awesome, glorious message. And yet, how many guys know that even the gospel would do nothing if Jesus is not here at work. It would do nothing. That's why oftentimes you share the gospel, the glorious gospel with your friends and it does nothing. It's because Jesus has to be present, working through that. And so Jesus is everything. And yet when we look at Revelation, his promise, his word says he is in the midst. He is always in the midst of his church, ministering to his church. And this includes our church. And so, that I'm, so I'm praying for that, that we would have that revelation as we've been going through the book of Revelation. Is that we would understand Jesus is in the midst. You know, I wasn't planning to say this at all. It's not even in my nose. But do you know what? That does when you begin to realize God is in the midst right here. It changes non-believers into worshipers. It really does. I was just reading this earlier this past week. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25, you know what it says? It says when a non-believer comes into the church and they hear a prophetic word and that word reveals the secrets in their hearts, you know what will happen? They will fall to the ground and say what? God is among you. And they will worship God. It literally says they will worship God. A non-believer becomes a worshiper. Why? Because they heard a prophecy? Well, yeah. But it's not only that. But why? Because through that prophetic word, they realize God is here, right? So if God is here, even a non-believer who comes to realize that becomes a worshiper. And so that is what I'm praying. Is that some of you would go from a non-believer to a worshiper. And yes, there are non-believers in the church, and we love you, we welcome you, but you are a non-believer, and I pray you will become a worshiper. Amen? So this is why Jesus wrote these letters, to show them, to encourage these churches, I am in the midst, and I'm constantly reaching out to my church, ministering to the church. So this is what Jesus is doing, this is why he wrote these letters, and today we're going to be looking at his sixth letter to the church at Philadelphia. And this is not Philly here (laughs) in the U.S., but this is Philadelphia in the first century. But the city of Philadelphia, this was a city at the crossroads of several trade routes, so there was a lot of economic activity happening in the city. It was known for its vineyards and its grapes. They didn't have cheesesteak sandwiches yet, but this is what they were known for. The city was built as a missionary city, and they weren't there to spread the gospel, No, but they were there to spread Greek culture. So they were missionaries for Greek culture. It was also built near a volcano, and it suffered from earthquakes. Historians know that back in AD 17, this is in the first century, there was a terrible earthquake that devastated the city, and according to archaeologists, it left a psychological scar. This is what William Ramsey said. It left a quote-unquote psychological scar. What he meant is that from that point on, they lived in constant fear and anxiety. And periodically, even if there was like a little tremor, they would just all leave the city and move into the countryside for a while and then move back to the city and then leave again, go to the countryside and come back. And so this is the city of Philadelphia. They also had the usual temples to the Roman emperor. It also had a population of Jews living there. We know that they had a synagogue because Jesus mentioned the synagogue. It wasn't a good name for it but he called it the synagogue of satan but there were jews living there and this is something interesting but the city also has several name changes so they went through some identity changes but originally it was called philadelphia which by the way means brotherly love phileo love adelphos brother philadelphia brotherly love But then later, that name was changed to Neo-Caesarea, and then again to Flavia. And so they're going through all these name changes and identity changes. And Jesus draws that out in his letter to them. Because he talks about, I'm going to give you a name that will be permanent. Your identity will not change. So he talks about that later. But this is the city of Philadelphia. And the church now in Philadelphia was right there, preaching the gospel. They were not a very big church. In fact, this is one of the newest cities, the newest city among the seven cities. And so this church was probably one of the newest, youngest churches, not very big, but they were enduring. They were an enduring church. And in many ways the church of Philadelphia was the opposite of the church at Sardis. They were the opposite. These two churches were only 30 miles apart. So Philadelphia, if you look on a map, of Asia Minor, they were only about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, so very close to each other, and yet they couldn't be more different. They were, in fact, opposites. The church at Sardis was dead. The church at Philadelphia was spiritually alive. Jesus had nothing good to say about the church at Sardis. Jesus had nothing bad to say about the church at Philadelphia. The church at Sardis was left totally alone. Nobody cared about that church. Nobody persecuted them. The Romans left them alone. The Jews left them alone. The church of Philadelphia was being intensely persecuted by the Jews. The Jews cared a lot about that church. They were attacking that church. In fact, Jesus called these Jews a synagogue of Satan. And Jesus told the church at Sardis, if you don't repent, I'm going to come quickly to do what? Judge you. To the church of Philadelphia, he said, because you've persevered in my name, I'm going to come quickly to do what? Deliver you. See, it's the complete opposite. So these churches couldn't be more different. And it's encouraging to know that there are churches like Philadelphia. Amen? So when we read through the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, yeah, most of the churches were in trouble. And yet, there are bright spots. But here's the church at Philadelphia. And that should be encouraging because up until now, we know that all the churches were in trouble and they were going from bad to worse. So going from Ephesus to Pergamum to Thyatira and then to Sardis, you're going from bad to worse. And the only church that has been faithful so far was the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. Well, now we have another good church, the church at Philadelphia. They were enduring They're the enduring church, and I believe that this is an accurate reflection of the churches in the last days, and I've been saying that every week, but these letters, talking about these churches, they're not just for ancient times, but Jesus wrote these letters so that it would reflect the churches of all time, throughout all time, and when you look at the different churches here, it's a total reflection of how churches are going to be today in the last days. Because I really believe this. But as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, the majority of churches throughout the world are going to be plagued with problems. Like in Revelation 2 and 3. See, if you look in those letters, the majority of the churches had tons of problems. And I believe the churches, as we get closer to Jesus' return, are going to be the same. Majority are going to be in trouble. I'm talking about a loss of love, their first love for God compromise, false teaching, false teachers, worldliness, spiritual deadness. Yeah, all these things will mark the church in the last days. And many of them are going to go from bad to worse. I think that was intentional in those letters. You start out with a church that's doing okay, they're kind of hanging on, the Ephesus church, and then it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, until finally you get to the Laodicean church. We'll see that next. But they were the worst church. And yet, in the midst of that, there's an encouraging message. There are churches who are still faithful. There are churches who are faithful. And so even as the set the sun begins to set, as the land gets darker and darker in our day, there will be faithful churches. and there are. There will be enduring churches like Smyrna and Philadelphia. And this is what Jesus wants us to hear. He wants us to hear these messages to all the churches so that we can avoid being like the unfaithful ones and we can become like the faithful ones. Okay, how do I know Jesus wants the churches today to hear that? Because look at the end of every letter. Okay, how did Jesus end every single letter? It's the same thing. He always ended it by saying, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, every letter ends with that. Okay, what is he saying? I believe he's saying, Whatever age you're living in, whatever part of the earth you're living in, if you have an ear to hear, listen. You listen to what my spirit is saying to the churches. So it's not just to these churches in the first century, but it's to every church throughout all time, wherever you live. Jesus is saying, if you have an ear to hear, listen. Listen. Because these letters are going to define the churches in your day. It doesn't matter what time you live in, the Middle Ages. The Enlightenment period, the modern age, and the last days, it's going to define the church in your time. And what are we reading here? The majority of churches are going to be in trouble, and they're going to become false, go from bad to worse, but there will be a few who are going to be faithful. There will be a few who will endure. And Jesus is saying, listen, be like those churches, and don't be like these other ones. So now today, when we look at the letter to the church of Philadelphia, what does he say? What is he saying about this faithful, enduring church? Well, he spoke about the test of endurance. And then he spoke about the source of endurance. And then finally, the rewards for endurance. And because there's so much in here, we're going to actually carry it over to next Sunday. So we're not going to look at everything today. But this is what he talks about. The endurance of this church. So first, the test of endurance. The test of endurance. Now, some of you guys, I understand you only took science in college. You're not really you know, good with English, so let me define what this word means. I don't, that's a joke. I know you guys know. <laughs> but endurance is the ability to keep going under difficult circumstances. Okay, that's endurance. It's having stamina. It's the ability to hold up under the weight of pain and suffering. Okay, you can bear hardship. You're able to bear it. That is endurance. And Jesus gave a word about endurance to the church of Philadelphia. He did. But if you look at Revelation 3.8, he says, I know your works. I know that you have but little power. Okay, they were a small church, not very strong, not very influential. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So here Jesus mentions a word that he spoke to them in the past. Okay, we don't know what that word was specifically, but it was a word that he gave to them before. Maybe it was through the Apostle John, maybe the Apostle Paul. But there was a word that he had spoken to them before. And Jesus commends them now in verse A for keeping it. Okay, but, but what was his word? Well, we don't know exactly, but we know, we know a little bit. Because look at verse 10. He tells them what the word was about. It was his word about patient endurance. Patient Endurance. So in the past, Jesus gave them a word about the need to patiently endure in the face of suffering. And the reason why Jesus gave them that word before is because there were Jews in that city who were attacking this church. Jesus didn't have nice things to say about them. These were not real Jews because a real Jew, we learn from the New Testament, is a Jew who circumcised in heart. And not just a genetic descendant of Abraham but anybody who's circumcised in heart through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a true Jew. So these weren't real Jews. I mean, they were descendants of Abraham, but they weren't real Jews, and they were persecuting the church. And in response to that, Jesus said, endure. I want you to endure. And hearing that, the church of Philadelphia said yes, and they endured. And so now we come to this letter, and Jesus is saying, yes, I'm commending you for it. Good job. So their endurance was not something that happened by chance. It was not something they did just because that's who they are. No, it was something that Jesus commanded them to do, and it was something he wanted to produce in them. He gave them this word to endure. Why? Because he wanted to produce endurance in them. This is the way I say it. He was testing them when he gave them this word. That word test is not in our verses but in other parts of the New Testament, this is, this is what God does. We know this is what God does when he tells us to endure. He's testing us. God tests our faith to produce endurance. You listen to James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, endurance. And let endurance or steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it's very clear. God will test our faith to see if you're going to hold on to the gospel, to Christ, through all the ups and downs of life, whatever trial comes your way, you're holding on to Jesus Christ. That is the endurance he's talking about. So why does God tell us to endure? And why, why will he bring these things into our life? To test us. This is what he did to the church of Philadelphia. He was testing them. And almost always this testing comes through suffering. I would probably say always, always. It comes through suffering. And I feel like this is one of the realities of the Christian life we don't hear a lot about. When's the last time you picked up a book at the Christian store? Suffering, (laughs) the way God will test you, right? I mean, this isn't the way people usually talk about the Christian life. And yet it's so clear in Scripture, it's repeated everywhere, especially in the New Testament. God will test our faith in order to produce endurance. And that testing often comes through suffering. Again, I think it's always through suffering. You know, last year I really enjoyed watching the Olympics with my family. It was one of the first times when they were old enough to know what it is. And we especially enjoyed watching the track and field events. And what the athletes are able to do on the track are amazing, it's inspiring. But you know what else was inspiring, at least to me, I don't know about my kiss, but to me was all the training that went in to get there, the training that they did before getting there. And NBC, they did a decent job, okay, I gotta give them some credit for highlighting that training. But oftentimes this training is hard work, it is grueling, it is painful. But every athlete knows, Without it, you're not going to have endurance to run the race. And if you think about their training, what is that? It's a form of suffering, right? Training is a form of suffering. In fact, it's kind of mimicking the suffering that they're going to go through the actual race because the actual race is suffering too. Maybe it's the marathon, maybe it's the 50-yard dash. But it is a form of suffering, and they're mimicking that suffering, repeating it many, many times. Why? To build endurance. So every athlete knows that. Unless you put yourself under that kind of suffering, you're not going to have endurance. And please, hear this. You've got to know this about your faith. It's not just about, oh, Jesus is there to help me. So, oh, God, something's bad in my life. Help me, Jesus. Take it away. That's pretty much the Christian life for most people. That is not the Christian life. That's part of it. But hear this. This is the same with your faith. But God will intentionally allow or directly bring suffering into your life. He will. And I'm not shy to say that because we see it in Scripture. God will intentionally bring, at times, suffering into your life. Why? In order to build endurance. In the same way that a coach will stick his athlete into a training program that's rigorous to mimic that suffering, to cause actual suffering. Why? To build endurance. So God will do that in our lives, and we need to be clear about that in our Christian lives. Because so many Christians, especially today in America, we don't understand that. So to some total of the walk with God is, oh, God, help me. I don't want this in my life. Take it away. Oh, thank you, God, you did. Oh, you didn't, God. What's going on? I mean, that's the Christian life for most people. You know, yesterday at the Ephesian study, I was there. I showed up. <laughs> it was good. It was really good. I'm going to show up again. But I remember uh, talking to the group there, and I remember sharing this with the the people during the discussion, but I meet with a lot of people as a pastor, and oftentimes when people share about struggling with God in some way, about 80% of the time, I would say maybe higher, more than 80% of the time, their struggle with God comes because of wrong expectations, because of mismatch and expectations. Okay, what do I mean? Well, most Christians, most people that I talk to, what they expect from God is almost always, God, I'm going through some hard stuff. Take it away. Take away my suffering. God, bless me. I want some good stuff in my life. Bless me. And that's pretty much their expectation. That's pretty much it. That is their relationship with God. God, take away the bad stuff. God, give me some more good stuff. And that, by the way, is a product of our modern culture. Okay, I've said this before, but you know our culture today it is one of the worst. You know, I I, I love you know I like, I like phones, right? I like, I like modern technology, but our culture is one of the worst because throughout human history, most cultures have some way of dealing with suffering. Our culture today has almost zero resources. Okay, our culture today, the sum total of their dealing of suffering is, you know what, we got to just minimize it as much as possible, and that's pretty much it. There's no other approach to suffering. Just minimize, 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 and if we can't get rid of it, just manage, 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 manage. That's pretty much all they offer. But that is not God's expectation. That's not how God sees it. This is what God expects of us. I want you to have a faith that endures. I want you to become like my son Jesus Christ. That is his highest expectation. And even if it requires suffering to get you there, I will bring suffering into your life. That is God's expectation. Do you see the mismatch now? So we're here thinking, God, I don't want suffering. Get rid of it. Bless me. Bless me. And God's here going, I want you to be like my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to have a faith that endures. And even if it requires suffering, sometimes terrible suffering, I will bring it to get you there. (laughs) We're like this. And then we stand here going, why, God, I hate you. And I don't see that as a joke. That is a real struggle for many people. I hate God. I don't want God. Well, you just have a wrong expectation of who God is and what he's doing in your life. And so what I'm saying is God will use suffering. I'm not saying that he will bring every single suffering in your life he brought. I'm not saying that. A lot of the suffering in our lives is a result of sin. Your sin brought suffering into your life. God is not the author of sin. I'm not saying that your life is just going to be one drearily long life of suffering. I'm not saying that either. There's plenty of great joys and amazing blessings in our lives from God. But what I am saying is God will use suffering that's already there. And at times he will directly bring suffering into your life to build endurance. This is clear. If you don't wrap your head around this, if you don't have this understanding, you are going to continuously struggle in your Christian life. Again, it's like the Olympic coach who puts his athlete intentionally into rigorous training, intentionally causing suffering in that athlete. Why? Because that coach knows, the wise coach knows, unless you go through that, you are not going to have endurance. You will never finish the race. So this is so clear in Scripture. One of the clearest examples is Abraham's life. But it says in Genesis 22, verse 1. Okay, these aren't going to be up there. But it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. This is one part of your relationship with God you need to accept. God will test you. He tests me. God tests his people. It says, God tested Abraham. And you might be thinking, okay, what what kind of test? What, What was this testing? Well, immediately we see what happened. God commanded Abraham to do something that brought suffering. He just started suffering. It says, God said to Abraham, and Abraham said, here am I. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. This is terrible. This is his one and only son that he waited until he was 100 years old to receive from God, a miracle child. And God says, I want you to kill him as a burnt offering? I mean, this is like grossly immoral even. What kind of a God is this? But God said, I want you to take your son, offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And then what you begin to read from that point on is a series of things that Abraham went through that just brought suffering after suffering. The text really draws it out. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. God knew exactly what he was asking. Your only son whom you love. And by the way, that word son there, if you keep reading on in the verses, I counted no less than 10 times that word is repeated. Son, 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 10 times. It's almost like the Bible was emphasizing what was going through Abraham's mind. Okay, God's commanding me to kill my son, 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 my son. He wants me to kill my son. Ten times is repeated. And not just my son, but my only son whom I love. So do you see the suffering that Abraham would have gone through? And the text continues to draw out more details that would have really shown the suffering. But God didn't just say, hey, Abraham, just do it in your backyard right now. Just just right now, go. No, he said, I want you to take him three days' journey. So Abraham had to actually pack up his bags, get his son, his servants, and go somewhere far for three days. I mean, where can you go in three days? I think I could end up in, like, I don't know, Texas somewhere. (laughs) I don't know, maybe further Alabama. I mean, you can go pretty far in three days. Abraham had to journey for three days, knowing all along what he was going to do at the end of the three days. Three days to think about what's going to happen to his son. Three days to look into the face of his son, my only son, the son I love. And once they got to the mountain, it says that they left the servants at the base of the mountain, and just Isaac and Abraham began to climb up. And and then look at this question by Isaac. And Isaac, by this time, would have been like a young lad, like maybe 12, 13. And he said, Father, we have the fire. We have wood. But where's the animal? Where's the sacrifice? That would have just been like a dagger to Abraham's heart. So my point being is that look at all the suffering that he was going through. And Abraham went through that alone. He didn't have Sarah there. He didn't have anyone to like kind of share that. Oh, help me. He's all alone because of God's command, suffering. Do you see this? Again, if you don't don't understand why and you're not accepting this, you're going to constantly struggle in your walk with God. I'm just going to be very blunt with you. You will continuously struggle because your expectation is, God bless me, take away my suffering. God's like, I'm going to cause suffering because I have a different goal for you. I want you to have a faith that endures. I'm forming you, I'm shaping you. My highest desire for you is not that you have a comfortable life. I want you to be like my son, Jesus Christ. That's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, you get a little gift here, a blessing, it's going to evaporate. God's like, I'm going to give you the gift that keeps on giving. I'm going to make you into my son, Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, that can only come through suffering. So this was Abraham. So then Abraham answered Isaac, God will provide the sacrifice. That's the statement of faith. I mean, he probably choked out those words. And then when he got to the top of the mountain, he suddenly, even as an old man, he was able to grab his young son. He would have just shocked Isaac, just grabbed him, tied his hands behind his back, laid him on the wood. And then he raised the knife, and he was about to plunge it into his son's heart. And in that moment, God says, stop! Right? An angel appeared and just, stop! And he said, I know now where your heart is. I know your faith. So this was a huge test. God never intended to kill Isaac. Of course God wouldn't do that. It was just a huge test. But what's the point? The point is it came through suffering, right? That's the only way the faith was going to be built up. And so here's the big question. Who brought all that suffering into Abraham's life? Who brought it? Was it some dream Abraham has? Some demonic, you know, vision? No, it was God. God caused all that suffering in his life. Now you see why this isn't a popular topic. You don't really see a lot of books on this. God causes suffering in Abraham's life. And again, if you struggle to accept that, it's because you have a different expectation of God. You have a different vision of God. It's not biblical. God will bless your life beyond your imagination, but that road to that blessing involves suffering. His goals and expectations for you are different. But why? Okay, why, why did God cause so much suffering in Abraham's life? Well, ultimately, it was the foreshadow god giving up his own son god was saying this is what i'm going to do i'm going to suffer for you so that's the ultimate answer but the immediate answer is in genesis 22 we already read it god was testing abraham it was a big test so these tests almost always come through suffering and why does this have to happen again so that our faith will endure Without it, you will have a very, very shallow, weak, pathetic faith. It is a faith where you love God when things are good, and you hate God when things are bad. And that is basically it. But God wants us to have a faith even when everything is gone. Job said, even when you, if you kill me, God, even if you lead me to my own death, I will still worship you. And I'll be honest, I don't understand that kind of faith yet. Maybe I will one day, but I don't understand that yet. Even if you kill me, God, I will still worship you. So that's the kind of faith God wants, a faith that endures. So why does God take such extreme measure, measures? Okay, well, why is it so important to God that your faith endure, right? Why, why is it so important, brothers and sisters? And this is very, very important. This is actually the main point of Revelation 3, our passage. Please hear this. It's because the faith that endures is the only faith that saves. This is why it's so important to God that your faith will endure. If your faith does not endure, if you do not cling to Christ through all the ups and downs of life, all the suffering that God might lead you into, if you do not cling to Christ through everything and endure, then you are not saved. And you're like, what? That's not the gospel. We're saved by grace. Yes, you are. Yes, we are. Saved by grace through faith. But what's the evidence of saving faith is endurance. So I don't pull back in saying this. The only faith that saves is the faith that endures. If a person does not endure in their faith. In other words, if they give up believing in Jesus Christ, if they give up trusting in him and following him because things got really hard in their life. Then the Bible says that person is not saved. You are not going to heaven. I'll be even more blunt because people just don't say it nowadays. You will be in hell. You will not be saved. So this is how important an enduring faith is. And I want to be clear. Don't misunderstand. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. No one earns their way into heaven. You are saved because of your faith. But the faith that saves will always produce endurance. Always. That's how you know you have saving faith because it keeps going. It keeps going. So endurance is the fruit of saving faith. And you don't have to accept my word. The New Testament says it repeatedly. Hebrews 10.36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And that's talking about heaven. You may receive eternal life. Romans 2.6-7, God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence Endurance in doing good, see glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. You got to endure. Matthew 24:13. 13, Jesus said it the most bluntly the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, you might have a great start. You're born into a Christian family, Christian parents, Christian church. You had a Christian Bible. You have Christian everything, Christian t shirts. You know, Christian bumper sticker on your car, everything, and then towards the end of your life, ah, I don't believe in any of this stuff. And you completely forego that, you are not saved. The Bible is very clear. Only the one who endures to the end will be saved. But we're saved by grace, yes. But the faith you receive as a gift endures. If you have a different kind of faith, that's not saving faith. That's not from God. So going back to the Olympic runner, at the beginning of the race... Nobody knows what's inside the runner, right? Okay, when everyone is there lined up on the starting line, on the blocks, and, you know, I, especially the 50-yard the dash, I mean, these look so, like, buff. You know, they're, they're so, like, ready and muscular to run, and you're like, whoa, this looks awesome. I mean, they look great, but you don't know what's inside the runners. What's the only thing that reveals what is inside the runner? What I mean is what they're made of, who they really are. What reveals it? The finish line. Not the starting line. The starting line doesn't reveal anything. They all look amazing. They all look awesome. What reveals who is the true runner, right? What is really inside? The finish line reveals it. This is what the Bible is saying. So that's the Christian. When you look at the starting line, when people first become Christian, I mean, it just looks very crowded. Everyone and their dogs are Christian, right? Especially in a country like America. 88% Christian. Everyone's a Christian almost. It's a very crowded starting line, but that doesn't mean anything. What reveals the truth, what's really inside? The finish line. The finish line reveals it. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why? Because they're the true Christians. So I think this is so critical, brothers and sisters, because we're living in very changing times. And what I mean is when I was younger, I'm talking about back when I was in college. To me, that's younger. (laughs) To you're like, oh, I'm still waiting for college. (laughs) For me, it's like, oh, that was long ago. Or even a little after college. I don't remember hearing a lot about high-profile Christians falling away from the faith. I don't remember that. I don't remember uh, Christian authors or worship leaders. And heaven forbid pastors. I never heard about pastors falling away from the faith. And yet, fast forward to today, in the last five years, there have been many, right, many. I'm talking about high-profile pastors, people who have preached sermons. I've read their books. They're like, I'm not even a Christian anymore. Not only that, but five, I mean, I'm sorry, but back when I was in college, I almost knew nobody personally who renounced the faith. Nobody. Everybody I knew was a Christian. And yet, in the last five years, I can count many on my fingers People that I used to know. I remember this one brother I heard recently who no longer calls himself a Christian, doesn't go to church anymore. But I used to do missions with this brother. I mean, it wasn't just some acquaintance. I went to missions. I remember praying with that brother for God to do a mighty work, bring revival, and we're just praying together on the mission field. And this guy's not a Christian anymore? And so there are several people like that, personally, that I know. And so times are changing. And so what I'm saying today, brothers and sisters, is do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. We are saved by faith, not works. It is a gift from God. And yet once you receive that faith as a gift, it must endure. It must go all the way to the finish line. Again, what I mean is you will not give up trusting in Christ, following Christ, living for him, prioritizing your life around Christ. You will never give up. Yes, you'll have ups and downs. Yes, it doesn't mean you're not going to sin. You will sin. But you will hold on and you will cross the finish line. And if you don't, you never were saved. You never have saving faith. So this is so critical. You know, I remember a student in my um, college ministry, because I used to be a college pastor, but she came to me with this very question. But I remember uh, she had attended our church for a while, and she was a Christian. She grew up in the church. And then this happens to so many good women, so be careful if you're a a woman, (laughs) but she met a guy, right? And then this guy drew her away, was not a Christian. She stopped going to church, Eventually, she started questioning her salvation. I mean, she disappeared for a while. And then she showed up one day, maybe like two years later. And then she asked me this very urgent question. I could see it on her face. She she was like, I need to talk to you, Roy. And she said, how do I know for sure I'm saved? I was very convicted by that. But she's like, how do I know, Roy, that I'm really saved? Because she was really doubting her salvation. And I wish I would have told her this answer because it's so clear in the Bible when I read it now. But in the Bible, there's one sure way you can know you have repented and believed in the gospel and you endure in that belief. You keep on believing. You keep on holding on. Even if life is going up and down and you're like, oh gosh, this is hard and you feel far away and all this stuff is happening, but I hold on. I hold on. So no matter what you go through in life, you are holding on to Jesus and you are following him. So that is the faith that endures, and this is Jesus' commendation. Okay, this is what he said, you're doing well, Church of Philadelphia, is you have a faith that endures. Now, as you're hearing all this, you might begin to think, oh gosh, this is kind of making me scared. It's making me a little bit insecure here. And the reason why is because I don't know if I can can do this, right? I mean, yeah, maybe if I'm a world-class athlete, I can go through all this rigorous training and run the race, but I'm not like that, right? Even spiritually, I'm not like that. And so we can have a lot of fear in our hearts. Well, I have good news because that is not God's desire for your life. But he doesn't want you to live with constant insecurity and fear about your salvation, about whether you're going to endure. And he made this very clear to the Philadelphian church. But the source of endurance is not you. It's not you, but it's me. Okay? Jesus, he said, it's me. So if you look in Revelation 3, 8 through 9, and I'm only going to mention a few things here, and then we're going to actually pick it up next week. And the reason why is because this is such a huge topic, because now we're going to go into the perseverance of the saints, the assurance of salvation. And this is such an important topic, I want to address it in a separate sermon all by itself. It's very, very critical. But let me just mention a few things here. Revelation 3, 8 and 9. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What do you notice there? Three times Jesus says the word behold. Behold is another way of saying, look out, pay attention. Don't miss this. He's saying, behold, behold, behold. And what is he saying? Just saying, don't miss this. Who's the one who's going to help you overcome this thing that will stumble you and cause you to not endure, this persecution? Who's the one who's going to help you to endure that? Jesus said, me. Me. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, that they will learn that I have loved you. And I love that. We'll look at this more next week, but I love the twist. He reverses the tables there because these Jews were arrogantly, you know, saying to these Christians, you're not even of God. You're not even the people of God. You're just like a counterfeit. You're following this false Messiah. We are the people of God. And and Jesus said, no, I'm going to turn the tables on them. But I'm going to prove to these Jews who aren't even real Jews who the real people of God are. It's you. I love you and these people here, they're not even of me. So he says, I'm going to do that. But here's the other thing, and here's the important part. He said, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And most people, uh, or a lot of people who read that, they think, oh yeah, this is the door to evangelism, because Paul talks a lot about open doors to evangelism. And that could be But if you look back earlier in verse 7, he talks about the keys of David. And because of the keys of David, nobody can shut these doors. And nobody can close the doors that I uh, uh, open. And nobody can open the doors that I shut because I have the keys of David. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the kingdom. David was the king over God's kingdom. And he's talking about the keys to the kingdom of God. And so here Jesus is saying, I will open a door. Why to you Philadelphians? that nobody can shut. And what is that door to? It's to the kingdom of God. And so what is Jesus saying? I'm the one who's going to make you endure. Do you see that? He says, it's going to be me. I'm the one. So up until now, we've looked at our part in endurance. We need to endure. But then next week, we're going to look at Jesus' part in endurance. He's the one who makes us endure. He's the one. So yeah, this does put some fear in this. It's like, oh my gosh, can I endure? I don't know if I can cross the finish line. But Jesus says, no, don't worry, I'm the one, I'm the one. So with that, we're going to just end it there, and we're going to pick it up next week again. But I do want to close with this. I really believe we're living in changing times, and so this is my prayer, this is my desire for this church here. But my wife and I, we've been reading um, here and there, or listening to videos, rather, of how our culture has developed kids and children who are just so weak and so soft there's an entire book written on it called The Coddling of the American Mind. I mean, we live in a, in a time and place now where there are these safe spaces, where microaggressions happen, and you've got to run to these safe spaces. And, oh, my gosh, you know, you looked at me weird. you know, and, and, and we're just so weak and fragile. And yet that's not the way God created human beings. That's the point of the whole book. Well, I believe the same way with believers. God did not create believers in that way. We are not fragile people, brothers and sisters, but God has created us in a way, believers. He has put certain things within us where we can endure, and so we need to have more grit. That's the thing that my wife and I have been talking about, is we need more grit in our culture. We need more grit for our children, and I say the same for our church. We need more grit, amen? We need churches who will go through the knocks. Yes, this didn't happen my way. Yes, I'm suffering because of the gospel. Yes, this terrible thing is happening in my life, but I hold on. Why? Because we have grit. We understand what God is doing. He's testing me. Right? He's just causing me to grow in endurance so that one day I will cross the finish line. Amen? Let's bow before the Lord. Let's come before him. But Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word today. Father God, your word... just simply understood and sincerely received, your word is what makes sense out of our lives. Your word is what brings true life. Not some fabricated idea of who you are, some Christian knees, some American cultural Christianity that we've received, but what your word really says. And yes, Lord, you have a lot to say about suffering and testing in our lives. But all of it is for the highest good so that we can have a faith that endures, so that we can be like your son, Jesus Christ. That is where you want us to cross the finish line. You want us to be like your son. So Lord God, thank you so much, Lord. This is exactly what you praise the Philadelphian church for. You heard my word to endure and you received it. You endured. So thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that the same would be true of the promised church. That we heard your word to endure and we endured. We endured. So Lord God, we thank you. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise, Lord. You're so awesome. You're so praiseworthy. 10,000 more times, I would rather know and praise the true God, not some imaginary feel good God that we create in our minds. I would far more know and worship the true God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. Let's, let's just praise Him. You know, I heard something powerful this past week by a pastor who is going through some great suffering in his own life but he said you know there are a lot of things we're going to be doing in heaven we're going to be worshiping we're going to be singing Jesus praise we're going to be fellowshipping with each other I mean there's so much waiting for us in heaven but there are some things we won't be doing in heaven that we can't do and he made this point and it was such a great point but he said But one thing one of the things we can't do is worship God in the midst of suffering facing trials in your life and in the midst of that praise God you can't do that in heaven why? because there are no more trials there is no more suffering but here we can do that here you can still worship God in the midst of suffering here I can't think of a better picture of a faith that endures. Okay, if you can worship God in the midst of your suffering, you have a faith that endures. Okay, you're gonna cross that finish line. So let's just come before the Lord. Let's, let's just ask God, God, please. Yes, there's a lot I need to do. My salvation and my sanctification is 100% me. It involves all of me, but it's 100% God. But it is 100% me too. So there's a lot I got to do. But Lord God, I can't do it though. So please help me. Your 100% is much, much bigger than my 100%. God, help me. Help me to worship you in the midst of suffering. Help me to worship you and endure. Please help me though. Let's just, let's just call before the Lord. If that's your prayer, if that's your desire in your heart, then pray that.